So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to pop your hands up. We would love to be able to pass you a free one. Uh, And for those uh, tuning in at home, um, feel free to grab your Bible as well. Uh, We're turning to the prophet Jeremiah first. Unfortunately, it's not up there on the screen. Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you get to the middle of your Bible in Psalms, you flick forward a bit. If you hit Isaiah, he's the, Jeremiah is the prophet immediately after Isaiah. Uh, just for some context, by way, before we read, Jeremiah was a prophet around the time of Judah's end. Uh, he kept calling the final kings to repentance, but in the end, Jeremiah saw with his own eyes the destruction of Jerusalem. And in that way, he was actually a contemporary of Ezekiel, so uh, Ezekiel as we looked at uh, last year. Uh, but uh, even though they were contemporaries, Jeremiah, location-wise, was in Jerusalem uh, in that time, whereas Ezekiel was off in Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, after six chapters of calling out their spiritual idolatry with uh, adultery with idols, uh, Jeremiah now turns to the temple and focusing on that and Israel's false security because of the bricks and mortar uh, that they had there. So Jeremiah chapter 7 from verse 1. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come to stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, When I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, do not pray for this people. Or lift up a cry of prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? Their children gather wood, 
The fathers kindle fire. The women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses, uh, from verse 45. This is the passage that Pastor Ben will be preaching from. Luke, chapter 19, verse 45. Verse 45. As he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people who were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I, will also, uh, I, will, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants And give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked at them and directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. This is God's word to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us so clearly through your word. Uh, We thank you that in your word uh, you uh, shine forth your uh, humongous eternal spotlight on Jesus for us to be able to see just how uh, centrally, vitally important he is, how he is indeed the cornerstone, not just of any building, uh, but the cornerstone of life and of peace and of uh, goodness now and forever. Um, So we pray, Father, as we hear how Jesus interacted with these uh, Jewish leaders in the past, you would help us to understand uh, and help us to be able to be struck uh, by their uh, blindness and their habitual rejection, and that we might be able to reflect on ourselves and on the people around us, that we might respond to Jesus as we ought to, as the one who is indeed the cornerstone of life and peace. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, on my uh, Facebook uh, feed, I, like uh, all of you, if you haven't yet turned it off, uh, gets these suggested posts. Everyone gets that? About every fourth or fifth post, I realize, is a suggested post uh, based on the algorithm of things I've clicked in the past or that I've searched in Google. So most of my uh, suggested posts are actually sports-related because I I like reading sports articles. Um, But one of them uh, that I do end up clicking on are articles to do with, um, like titled, for instance, people who didn't realize they were talking to the expert, right? Uh, have you heard of one of those, a BuzzFeed or one of those, you know, bored panda kind of articles? Uh, and then once I click on that, and now one comes up, you know, like 29 embarrassing moments people didn't realize who they're talking to and made a fool out of themselves, right? I don't know why I like reading stuff like that, but I do. Anyway, there's a couple of uh, ones that came up uh, as I looked at it again um, during the week as part of this uh, sermon introduction. I thought, oh, let's have a read about people like that. And a couple came up. One, one is this classic mansplaining. I'm not sure if you can read that. But basically, uh, it's this guy, right, who used a paper, uh, an a, a, a academic paper, against this woman that he was trying to argue with, uh, argue against her proposal and her analysis. The problem was that he was using her article, right, to argue against her, right? Hello. And the second one I, I, I really enjoyed this week was uh, the, this, this guy uh, responding to the, the Prime Minister of Malta announcing a terrorist attack on his country, and this man, this uh, internet hero, decides to say, source, where's your source, right? Without realizing, it's the pr- a prime minister of that country making this announcement and is demanding for a source for his information, right? How stupid is that? Now, there are people online and in our lives and perhaps even ourselves who like to you know, challenge and to reject people and their views without realizing who they are, right? They think they know everything, right? They're, they're ignorant and they're arrogant about their ignorance. I don't know about you, but I find these kind of people very infuriating. That's kind of why I like reading these articles, I guess. Maybe it makes me feel better than them. Uh, But then I realize that maybe I'm a bit like that sometimes myself, that I am filled with ignorance, and then to make it worse, I'm uh, uh, I'm arrogant about that. You don't realize that you're speaking against someone who knows more, Uh, that there's this stubborn, ignorant rejection in the face of clear and contrary evidence, right? I'm sure you know people like that in your world, and perhaps you're even like that yourself sometimes. And clearly, as we look at this passage, there were many people like that back in Jesus' day. Now, last week, as we looked at Jesus on his way into Jerusalem, as he was about to enter, he was weeping bitterly. He was having these heaving sobs of grief 
right, over the city of Jerusalem because it was precisely filled with people like this. People who didn't recognize the authority in their midst, right? And they made a fool of themselves. They rejected the one with authority. Now, in our passage this week, we're going to see the full picture of this. Right, last week, we saw Jesus crying over a city for people like this. This week, we'll get the picture of why or of what kind of rejection that they had for Jesus. Uh, even though, uh, as we have seen over the last few months, as we've been reading through Luke's gospel, that there is so much evidence that Jesus is the king sent by God, the one who brings life and peace, right? the one with all authorities in their midst, and yet they rejected him. So last week we saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem, a king on a cult, right? The picture of divine power, right? almighty power with great humility coming <coughs> to bring life and peace to the people. Uh, and the first place that he enters as he enters Jerusalem is to enter the temple, which is at the very heart of Jerusalem, right? You've got to know your geography uh, of the Old Testament to be able to really appreciate what's going on. The temple is right at the center of the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. It's the very heart of life with God, the heart of religion, the heart of everything. Uh, and the first thing that Jesus does as he enters the heart of, of Jerusalem, the temple, is to drive out these traders that are in there. And why is that? Well, he quotes for us uh, from Jeremiah 7, uh, as we record here in verse 46. Have a look at verse 46. Jesus says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Right? Uh, we must never underestimate the importance of the temple <clears throat> for Israel back in the Old Testament times in the time of Jesus. Right? Like I said, it's the center of the life uh, with God. Uh, it's the center place, the focal point of connection with God. It is the place where God provided His presence. He, he, the God of heaven and earth of all eternity, decided to put His presence, His glory into the center of this temple. And then he instituted a sacrificial system which would allow for people's sins to be made holy so they can approach God. It was the place where the priests were to teach the people of God how to live uh, under God as his people in faith and obedience and to be able to minister to the temple to allow for this connection to happen through the sacrificial system, right? It was a, the central place, a central to Israel's life. But not only Israel, we realize through the Old Testament that God always intended for the world to be blessed through Israel. And so the world, the, the Gentiles, the nations would flock in pilgrimage to this temple, usually once a year on the Day of Atonement, where they would come and they too would make the sacrifices and they would pray and they would come to be connected to the God of heaven and earth. But here uh, in Luke 19, the religious leaders of the time who were in charge of the temple had let it become a den of robbers that completely screwed up what the temple was meant to do. <clears throat> now, people brought sacrifices to the temple, right? Like any good Asian going to an elder's home, right, you always bring a gift. But even more so when you come to the presence of God, right? You had to bring your sacrifices. Now, imagine if you were traveling from a far distance, you're having to carry this, you know, 60, 80 kilo sheet, right, on your back, or a 500 kilo bull. That's impossible, right? So there was a system, a service provided uh, where people could buy sacrifices uh, for those who were traveling in, especially the Gentiles. But as we read this rebuke and this anger of Jesus at, at what he saw in the temple, it wasn't just a service that was being provided. It had become corrupted, right? It had become a, a place of commercialism. Uh, and he got angry with this because a place of connection, a place of prayer had become a corrupted place of commercialism where, where these traders were ripping 
people off. We are robbing people. And so Jesus, as he drove out these robbers from the temple, he was displaying once more his deep concern for connection with God, for peace. Right? As he, he had done so, as he entered Jerusalem, uh, the, the king on a donkey to bring in glorious peace. So here, he's clearing the temple to show that he wants to bring glorious peace, connection with God. Now, many of us who are familiar with this story <clears throat> think of Jesus as kind of cleansing the temple, right? Making the temple back to what it used to be or what it's supposed to be. But remember that this is a quote from Jeremiah 7, and as Steve so helpfully pointed out the context, Jeremiah 7 is a prophecy of judgment. It's not about uh, renovating something that's a problem, it's about destroying it. It's about bringing it down. It won't just be cleansed, it will be destroyed. And if you've been following along in Luke's Gospel, as we'll read on, the, the physical temple will be brought down, destroyed, and in place will be replaced the temple, not with another new building, but with Jesus himself, the temple of God. He himself will be the connection point between God and man. He will be where life and peace will be found. And so we see Jesus not just throwing out the merchants from the temple, but he himself sets up shop in the temple, doesn't he? Not in order to sell, but in order to teach and to preach the gospel. He came in a way to bring the, the words of life and of peace as the new temple Right, in this old temple. He came as the king, remember, to bring life and peace. Now, the Jewish leaders, <clears throat> they see what Jesus has done, and they get really angry, don't they? They react really, really badly. And they're like, who is this guy? Who are you? And how dare you do this at my place of work, right? This is our place. This is where we rule. This is where we control things. Who are you to come in and say these things and do these things? Because they know, right? that Jesus denouncing the temple activities is a denouncement of the leaders who are meant to be ruling and looking after this temple. <clears throat> now, you got to remember that the Jewish leaders had one job. You know, you had one job. And their one job was to bring the people to the worship of God. They were to lead people to the worship of God. That was their one job. They were to teach people about God, teach people about His ways and His works. <clears throat> they were to model it in their lives, they were to serve the people by drawing them into the presence of God. And they were given every tool that they needed to do so. They were given the very word of God, right? the laws and instructions about how to live as God's people in faith and obedience. They were given instructions for how to look after the temple, to do all the sacrifices that allow people to be made holy again. They were given the promises of God. They were given the prophecies of God about the Christ, the Savior, the King. They were given everything they needed to this one job. But yet they failed, isn't it? This one job that they had to mediate God's presence, to bring God's peace to the people, the temple was the case in point as to how badly they failed their job. And so Jesus comes in and he calls out their error and he calls for them to repent. And what do they do? Well, they reject him. And not only do they reject him, they sought to destroy him to destroy the very one who came to bring God's peace. Now, why would they do that, right? Why would they not just want to reject his authority, but they want to destroy him? That's how much they want to reject him. Well, it's because there are a group of people that have always rejected the things from God, the things of heaven. They've always been the ones to refuse to acknowledge those who've been sent by God 
from heaven to earth. And so as we read on, this is exactly what we see. And I have a look at uh, chapter 20, verse 1, the next verse. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who it is that gave you this authority? Right, to these leaders, right, Jesus was just a nobody. Right? He, he had no credentials. He had no recognized qualifications. Right? To be a Pharisee, you had to be qualified. You had to attend Pharisee school. Right? To be a priest, you had to be appointed. You had to be of the, uh, the descendants of Levi. To be an elder, you had to come before the Sanhedrin and, and, and the, 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 the synagogue and to be voted in, right? to be elected as an elder. Jesus had none of these things. He, he came to them, in their view anyway, as one with self-proclaimed authority. And no one accepted self-proclaimed authority back in those days. Well, no one accepts self-proclaimed authority even today, right? <clears throat> so if you, were to be, uh, if you were to rock up to any school and say, I want to teach, or if you were to rock up into a hospital and start treating patients and doing surgery, or if you were to come into church and want to start preaching and pastoring people, people will go, hey, hang on. Right, what gives you the right? Show me your qualifications. Now, these days, you need a degree from a recognized tertiary institute. You can't just go home to your color printer and like, print out a degree for yourself and go, you know, from the University of Benjamin Home or something, right? You can't just do that. And not only that, you need professional references, right? Personal and professional references to, to say that you're legit, that you know what you're doing, that you've got experience in this field. Well, Jesus, he had no recognized qualifications from the Jewish community to put forward, seemingly. Not recognized by these leaders anyway, right? So what gave him the right? To cause such a ruckus in the temple and to, to throw out all these uh, traders and to set up shop and teach the people who came into the temple. Well, Jesus wouldn't give them a straight answer, would he? He doesn't want to play the game because he knew they weren't really asking. And like any good Bible study leader, he did the infuriating thing of asking a question and respond to a question. Right? You answer a question with a question. But he wasn't trying to play a game here. He asked a question and responds to the question to get to the heart of their problem, to expose them. Now listen, listen, right, verse 3. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, hey, if we say from heaven... He will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So the, these leaders, they answered that they did not know where it came from. And so Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See what Jesus is doing here, right? He's bringing up John the Baptist. Now, if you've been following along from the beginning of Luke's gospel, you'll know the importance of John the Baptist. All the way back to Luke 1, um, uh, at this point in the story, John the Baptist is dead, right? He's been beheaded by King Herod, one of the Jewish leaders, right, for preaching the gospel and for calling out sin, okay? So now John is dead, but Jesus is bringing up John the Baptist to remind them of who he was and how they responded to him. Now, who is John the Baptist? Well, he is the second cousin of Jesus, if you didn't know. So he's the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is cousins with Mary, and Mary is the mother of Jesus, so they're second cousins. But more importantly... John the Baptist came as someone sent by God to be a prophet, to be the fulfillment of the second Elijah who would come to prepare the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist's ministry was about preaching the repentance and getting people to be baptized 
uh, in the Jordan River as a way to prepare themselves with repentant hearts to receive the Lord, whom we know is the Lord Jesus, right? Now, the people back then, as, G- as John about went, his, uh, went about his ministry of repentance, responded. They were waiting for this Elijah figure, and when they heard John preach, they knew that they wanted to get ready for Jesus' coming. But the Jewish leaders, even back then, they had refused to respond to John. They stood by the sideline, criticized and judged. And finally, of course, they, they put him to death. Their figurehead leader, Herod, killed him. And so Jesus is saying, if that's how you treated John the Baptist back then, there is no way you're going to treat me any different, right? You've got this habit. You've got this track record of being closed off to the things of God. God sends someone from heaven, you won't hear, you won't hear now. In fact, as he will go on to, to speak a parable that will show that for the entire history of Israel, they were filled with leaders and people like this. But before we get into the parable and the history of Israel's rejection of God's servants, let us think for a moment and pause for a moment at this idea of spiritual blindness and habitual rejection. Right, the idea of spiritual blindness and habitual reaction. I'm not sure if you've ever wondered, like, you know, why is it that, you know, as we look around people, uh, we, we see that, uh, as we look at this passage, as we look at the Bible, that there are people like the Jewish leaders, right, who, who were given so much, who had so much connection with God, yet they reject. What explains that? Well, what explains the fact that, you know, when you go to church, uh, you, you see people who, who see and receive spiritual things from God, and you see people who don't. Why is it in our lives that there are people who believe in Jesus as really the Son of God, the King and the Savior, and they believe and they trust and they try to follow Him as best as they can, and there are others who hear the same messages, who go to the same studies, read the same Bible, read the same books, but they, they, they never come to any belief or, or faith or trust in Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us that this thing called spiritual blindness is very real. And in fact, it's a fatal condition that all of us have to some degree. And the good news is that Jesus came to open spiritually blind eyes, right? We've seen that in Luke's gospel so far. He does it physically in healing the physically blind people as we saw in the previous chapters as a way to show us that he came with a ministry, with, a, with a, the, the, the mission of opening spiritually blind eyes for those who humble themselves and who ask for, for Jesus to open their eyes, Jesus will grant that. He is merciful to all who humbly come and ask for eyes to be opened to Him and to spiritual things. However, we've also seen that there will always be those who refuse to see. People who just don't want to humble themselves before God. They may say there is no God at all, or they may know that He's there, but I, I, I'm fine who, with who I am. Or there are people who will refuse to see that there, there, there is a, a severe problem of sin in their hearts and in their lives. That God has a problem with them as they have a problem with God. They, they, they refuse to see any need to be saved. For some, no matter how much you talk to them, how much they, they hear sermons or come to Bible study, they just don't really want to really consider Jesus and see Jesus for who He really is. You see, that this kind of rejection is not just a once-off thing. It's, it's something that happens, and then happens again, and it becomes a habit. Like we can form good habits, 
but we can also form bad habits, isn't it? And habits is such that the more you do it, the more deep-seated, deep-rooted it becomes, isn't it? The more stuck you are in that behavior. So you can imagine, you know, some of you are gardeners here. You're probably too young to have a garden anyway. But if you were to end up doing gardening and you were to buy some supplies, maybe sand, right, to, to make your, your grass nice and flat, and, you, and, and what you do is you buy it, it's all quite loose. And what you do is you have to find something to smack it down, right, compact it. I think rejecting Jesus and rejecting spiritual things is a bit like that. With every rejection, it's another boom, another boom, another compacting, another hardening experience, another blindness. And, and the, the tragedy of it all is sometimes the people who are the most spiritually blind are the ones who least realize it. And they just see other people as being the problem. And we don't look at ourselves and our hearts. There is something really tragic right, about an ongoing response of blindness and hardening. It gets worse and worse. But it's not just a natural result of our hardness. We also have heard, haven't we, that spiritual blindness is actually a judgment that Jesus himself pronounces. He's the one who hides the truth from those who reject him. He's the one who brings the judgment of further blinding to those who want to blind themselves to who Jesus is. Now, I want to really urge us to really be aware of this in our own lives, first and foremost. Whether we are those who often respond to God's Word, right? whether it's our own readings or whether it's sermons or our studies, with a level of uh, rejection and hard-heartedness. Be very careful, right? Because that can become a habit. And Jesus is judging that as well. And perhaps we know people around us that we need to really pray for that we see this kind of habitual hardening in the people around us, family members, housemates, people within church. Uh, we need to pray for them, for God to be mercifully opening their eyes, for them to humble themselves, right, to be able to receive the spiritual things from God, to be able to especially receive Jesus. Let's return now to these Jewish leaders. We've got a bit more of the passage to look at. Uh, and we have to look at how Jesus is highlighting that their rejection is not just once off with him, not just uh, uh, in response to his ministry or John the Baptist's ministry, but it goes all the way back, right, way back into their, their history. In fact, it goes way back to the beginning of the world, really, isn't it? Now, this is no ordinary parable, just to let you know. If you study Jesus' other parables, there are many of them in the Gospels, you'll notice that most of the parables are simpler stories they usually make a, simpler, a simple point, right? They're illustrations that make a clear point. Uh, it usually doesn't really have an allegorical meaning, meaning that each character and element of the story points to something real or specific. For instance, you know, many of you may know the, the parable of the four soils. So there is a sower who sows seed, the seed is the word of God, and there are four soils, four ways that people respond to the word of God, right? A pretty generic kind of teaching. <clears throat> but here, I think in context, it's very much allegorical, right? Every element and every, every character in the story relates to someone or something specific. Uh, the context and the details points us clearly to this kind of allegorical interpretation because Jesus is calling out, isn't he? He's directing these directly to the leaders of Israel. He's highlighting their historical track record. And he is predicting, prophesying what these exact people will do to him. The parable will show that. So as we go to the parable, the, the landowner, the vineyard owner, is obviously God, isn't it? He, he's the one who creates and makes the vineyard, uh, and then he lets it out to the tenants. 
Uh, he's not physically present, but he still holds the tenants accountable. He's still in charge. He holds them accountable. The vineyard, I think, it symbolizes God's place in general, right? the place of life and blessing. It's most likely the promised land in the story or Israel. And then it kind of becomes Jerusalem and it becomes about the sun, but it's about God's place, right, the vineyard. The, te- the tenants, they're, they're, they're the Jewish people and maybe particularly the Jewish leaders. Right? They live in God's good land, in God's place, uh, and they are to give some of their fruit of the vineyard uh, back to the owner, to God. Um, the tenants, they get to live in this vineyard and they get to enjoy it. Uh, it uh, it's completely justifiable and reasonable and right that they make some return, right? give some of their returns to God, uh, whether it's rent in the story terms or whether it's the fruit of faith and obedience. Uh, and we see God sending servants, the, uh, the owner sending servants, right, to, 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 to bear this, to, to collect this fruit. Uh, and this we can see as being God's, you know, prophets and priests and judges and kings uh, who were sent to Israel to lead them into this kind of fruitfulness, to call them to, to this kind of life, this kind of uh, produce, right? But as we hear in the story, servant after servant after servant is treated badly, they are beaten, they are shamed, they are shunned, they are thrown out. Right? The three servants in the parable, they, they come and go, and each being treated worse than the last. Uh, apparently, if you know Hebrew, uh, and I don't know it that well, but the commentaries tell me that each time the description escalates, right? each servant is treated worse than the one before. And this is the historical reality of Israel. This is how they treated God's messengers. Right? So what now, right? So what, what happens now in the story? Let's have a look. <clears throat> Verse 13. Then the owner of the, power of the vineyard said, What shall I do? What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, Oh, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, there's a lot of strange things going on in this few verses, if you were to listen carefully. Firstly, the owner, I don't know why he's trying so hard, but he is, isn't he? He figures they, they've rejected and they've, they, 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 they've insulted my servants. Maybe my, my son will turn things around. Maybe they'll show him some respect because he's my very own son. Yeah, nah, as the Aussies would say, right? It doesn't happen. Uh, instead, they decide to kill the son. And they're reasoning. Don't you find it strange and kind of illogical? But it's kind of clear what they intend, isn't it? They came to think to themselves, if the son, the heir, is killed, uh, who will take over this land? Who will take over this vineyard? It'll be ours, right? That's the kind of logic, the kind of strange logic that they've got. It'll be all ours if we get rid of the heir. Now, with the killing of the son, it certainly gets very personal, doesn't it? It gets very personal. You see, with the servants that were sent before, maybe you could say it was just business. It was economical, right? They just didn't want to pay, right? They were just uh, wanting to scam the system. They, it was just business, nothing personal, owner. I just don't want to pay you what you deserve, what, what I owe. But when it comes to the sun, well, it's definitely personal. Now they want the vineyard, they want the inheritance for themselves. Right? They, they want to get the title deeds, and they want to get the inheritance papers, and they want to scratch out the son's name and put their own names on it. They want to kill the owner's son to get the vineyard. They want the kingdom, 
but they don't want the king. That's basically it, isn't it? And that's basically the definition of sin in the Bible. We want the kingdom, but we don't want the king. It's the way that it's been right from the beginning of creation. It's been like that all the way through the history of Israel. And it's been like that, and it's like that, right to this very moment. We want all that life has to offer, but we don't want the life giver. We want all the blessings and the enjoyments of creation, but we don't want the creator. We want to have all the rights, but we don't want to have the ruler. We want the kingdom, but without the king. And and these spiritual leaders of Israel, the sinful leaders of Israel, will do whatever it takes to get what they want, to maintain their sinful, kingless, creatorless, godless way of life. They would ignore, they would reject, they would shun, they would mock, they would plot against, they would harm God's servants, and they would even kill His Son. And of course, this parable becomes a prophecy, doesn't it? Because in a matter of days, these very leaders would do exactly that. They would kill God's Son. And when you think about sin like that, it isn't that the same today, that we, we live in a world, perhaps even in our own lives, we see this evidence that we want the kingdom without the king. We want the creation and all of its blessings without the creator. We want all the rights. We want a, uh, a play in this world, but we don't want the ruler. We want to be our own kings, whether that's in a personal sense, whether it's in our social space, whether it's in ruling our country or the world. We live amongst, we ourselves are sinners who want the kingdom, who don't want the king. And so what we do is the same. We ignore, we reject, we mock, we plot against. We would uh, harm God's servants and even kill God's son by saying that he is not important, that it's not what we need. Reject him. Now, even with our sane stain perspective on things, we are not surprised, are we, to hear that the owner will do something about this. Right? No justice system in the world will allow for these kind of tenants to go off scot-free. And so it's the case, right? What will happen next? Verse 15, second part. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, the owner will have his revenge. He will have his revenge. To such thievery and and criminal irresponsibility, to such violence and abuse, to such blatant malice and murder, righteous wrath and punishment will fall, right? You've got to marvel, though, at just how long-suffering this owner really is, though. Why did it take him so long after having so many servants be mistreated so badly? Why would it take him so long to act? He's so long-suffering. You've got to marvel at that. He lets his tenants live there for years. They don't pay any rent. They harm his servants. So much disrespect. He would even risk sending his own son But you see, God, whom this owner represents, is even more long-suffering than even this owner, isn't he? God has sent more than just three servants in one lifetime. He's sent multiple servants over many lifetimes, over countless generations, over hundreds and hundreds of years. Through his own uh, direct divine intervention, through servant after servant after servant, human agents, 
kings, prophets, priests, random people through the Old Testament, through many signs and miracles, even through talking donkeys and writings on the wall, God has in many ways and at various times spoken to the people, wanting to connect with the people, wanting them to know Him, to come to Him in faith and obedience for life and peace. God keeps reaching out to His people and they keep rejecting over and over again. And then finally, God sends His very own Son and He's killed. And He's killed. And so then, the judgment of destruction is completely justifiable. The tenants will be destroyed. The rejecting and God-killing Jewish leaders of the first century will be destroyed. The city of Jerusalem, the crowds that bade for Jesus' blood, they will be judged because they deserve to be in rejecting God and His Son, the Lord Jesus. But strangely, it doesn't end there, right? Such is God's desire for His kingdom to be enjoyed. For, for people to have life and peace, that he does this weird thing. He gives it to somebody else. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I was this owner, I'd be done with tenants, right? I'd kick everybody out, and I'd rather just let the tenant, the, the vineyard, rot than to have any more sick and sorry and sinful tenants come and spoil my place and, 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 and humiliate my, my, my servants and my son. But see what God does, right? He, he gives it to others. That's how much he wants the kingdom to be enjoyed for people to have life and peace with him. Now, once again, this isn't some kind of like God made a mistake, right? You know, plan A is kind of screwed up big time, epic fail, so let's create a new plan. No, this is part of the salvation historical plan of God. We already know, right, that the nation of Israel, yes, they were chosen by God to be his special people, but right from the beginning, Right from the fall, Genesis 3, the hint of the gospel, Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, the father of Israel, that through Abraham, through Israel, the world would be blessed. It was always part of God's intention that the nations, the world, would be blessed. And so here we see that the rejection of God's son, this privilege, uh, of, uh, this privileged position of Israel will come to an end and the blessings will be thrown out to the world. In the long a uh, long time of long-suffering um, uh, patience of God uh, for Israel, His chosen nation, it comes to an end. The physical temple will be destroyed. In about 30 years' time, it physically will be destroyed. Uh, it will no longer be the physical location, the focal point of connection. It will be replaced by Jesus Himself, the new temple of God. It is where life and peace is to be found in Jesus the vineyard will be taken from these Israelites and given to others. Now the crowds who are listening in at this point, uh, in verse 18, uh, sorry, verse 16, they're shocked, aren't they? Right? The, the phrase is, how can this possibly be happening? Uh, the leaders who are part of this crowd are probably thinking the same because they fully understand what Jesus is saying here, right? It's the end. Like for this Jewish leader, this is the end for Israel in their rebellion. They get it. It's a tragedy, isn't it, that they did not recognize the most important person in the room. Not just the most important person in the room, but the most important person for eternity. He's the son. He's no joke. And here we get to the final point of the passage. All right, they really ought to have gotten Jesus right, and they didn't. It's a warning for us to make sure that we really get who Jesus is. Verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone 
will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is the cornerstone. <clears throat> now, many, many of us may hear the word cornerstone, and we're not really sure what it means. But if you remember, this is 2,000 years ago, uh, buildings were constructed with hand-cut stones, right? Not machine, not laser-cut, but hand-cut. And that first stone, the cornerstone that you choose, is the most important stone because it has to be exact right dimensions for the rest of the building to be built around, okay? It makes everything square, so to speak. In other words, it is the linchpin, right? The, the crux, the, the deciding factor, the determiner of the whole structure. Now, in what way is Jesus the cornerstone? What is he a cornerstone of? Well, I guess in context, you could say he's the cornerstone of the temple, of, of connection with God. And if that's the case, then he's the the, the, the center point, the crux of all of life and peace. Because it's only life in the kingdom with God in which we have life and life to the full, in which we have peace with God. Jesus is the, 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 the cornerstone of life now and forever. He came to bring peace with God, access and connection to the Father. He came as a sacrifice for sin to, dis- to, 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 to defeat the, the very thing that destroys peace and shalom the one that came to offer life to the full, to redeem and restore and reconcile and rehabilitate. He is that crucial. He is that important. He is that vital. And so what happens if you reject him? Well, it's tragic. It's fatal. It'll destroy you, basically, is what he's saying, right? You'll be crushed by this cornerstone if you reject him. You'll experience the crushing loss of all that is good because only... In God, in Christ, can you experience good? You you will face the crushing anger of God for your sinful rejection of His Son. And you experience the crushing destruction of facing the full punishment, the full judgment of God on that final day. Our passage so sadly concludes with the leaders of Israel being entirely true to form they get it. They say, Jesus is talking about us with this parable. They say that, right? And so what do they do? They seek to destroy him all the more. Can you see this, this blindness and this hardening has become so complete that they can't even respond, even though they know this parable is about them and about their history. What about for us? I'm thankful that as I know what God is doing in this period of time before Jesus returns is a period of time of grace where there is still opportunity to respond to God, to be able to see into spiritual things, to be able to hear the word of God about Jesus. Right? There's still an opportunity for us to see Jesus as God's king, the cornerstone of life and peace. For us to hear these warnings about habitual unbelief and rejection, and to be warned to never want to enjoy the kingdom without the king, the creation without the creator. And, and so today's response and application isn't, you know, do this or do that or become more godly or fix that problem. It is really an application, a response of deep conviction and commitment for us to walk away today saying to ourselves, I will never treat 
um, this world as a, as a place of my own kingdom and my own enjoyment, my own life without the king and the creator. It is to make a commitment to say, I, I'm not even going to dabble with even just a little bit of unbelief and the rejection of Jesus and his authority over my life. Because with every response of unbelief and rejection, it will only make me blinder and harder towards him. So today I'll make a commitment to soften my heart and, and to humble myself and to receive Jesus and his words and his ways as the words from God. You see, Jesus isn't just the most important person in the room. He's the cornerstone of life and peace now and forever. He is no small fry. Right? He is the, the king, the cornerstone. Let us remember that today and let's respond to that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And even a passage like this in which we see Jesus really going head-to-head against the Jewish leaders as he calls out um, their rejection, as he traces back to the history of their rejection of you and your servants and your ways and ultimately your son. We pray so much that you'll help us to see so clearly who Jesus really is, that he indeed is the the king in all power and humility who came to bring life and peace, that he is the cornerstone. He is really the crux, the, the, the centerpiece, the determining factor of all of life. And so we pray, Father, that you help us to also see the great danger of rejection. It becomes a habit, Father. Help us see this, that maybe a one-off rejection, uh, um, an uh, ignoring of you today, uh, a dismissing of your word, um, scoffing at what you say or just not wanting to, to, to think about it too much or perhaps even actively really rebelling against what you say and not wanting to repent and not wanting to change our thoughts and our ways. Please save us from this kind of blindness and hardness that will only get worse. Please help us to see Jesus rightly. Please help us to respond to him rightly. Please soften our hearts and open our eyes, we pray that we may know and enjoy every day of our life and into eternity uh, the goodness of life and peace that we have in Jesus. We pray too for our family and friends as we see in them the, the spiritual blindness and the heart, hardness of heart. We pray for your mercy to be upon them. Open their eyes, soften their hearts, help them to humble themselves, help them to come to know and trust the Lord Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen.